Amen. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. You know, that's fun singing some of those Christmas songs. Um, It's barely time to be allowed to sing them. I don't know if your house is like mine, but Christmas Day, like halfway through Christmas Day, or I'm sorry, Thanksgiving Day, that's when Christmas music becomes legal. Sometimes they try, I know, sometimes they try and bring it in before Thanksgiving, uh, but we have strict rules on that. Spankings are laid out if Christmas music comes before Thanksgiving. So, but what, what I was enjoying personally, sitting there singing those songs and thinking about Jesus coming and then thinking about, you know, we're looking at the book of John still and we're in this series looking at John, looking at Jesus. We're looking at the book of John, but learning about Jesus and we're sitting there singing about the day he came, you know, the, when he was born and why he came. He came as a rescue mission. And that's what I was kind of sitting there thinking about as we sang that Jesus came on a rescue mission. God sent his son on a rescue mission to reveal to us the father. God is knowable. If you didn't know that, there is a God and he's knowable. He has revealed himself to us through Jesus. So Jesus came to reveal the father. At one point, one of his disciples said, Jesus, show us the father and we'll be happy. Jesus said, haven't you been with me this long and you haven't recognized me? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. So Jesus came to reveal the father and Jesus came to save us from our sin. He did what we couldn't do. We were all born in sin, born sinners, destined for for hell and death, what we deserved, and we couldn't save ourselves, but Jesus died on the cross for us. That's why he came. And so I'm sitting there thinking, you know, the passage we're looking at is about 32 years after what we were just singing about. But if you're a movie fan, just picture the movie that this would make. Um, I mean, I know they've made movies, but how dramatic is it from God's point of view? I love these people and I want to rescue them. And so I'm going to come as a baby, you know, innocent, humble, um, vulnerable, it appears vulnerable, and then grow up living um, oppressed, often living poor, and then eventually being killed. I mean, that's an action movie. It's a dramatic movie, it's a, but it's, it's real life, that God came out on a rescue mission to save us. And so today, we're going to get to know Jesus just a little bit more. Um, Paul mentioned it, but this Wednesday, we have our second in three installments of our faith basics. Now, just so you know, basics doesn't mean simple or easy or elementary. It just means what we all need to know. And last week, we looked at who is God. This week, we're looking at who are you in Christ? Who are you as a Christian? Very, very important for every Christian to know who they are in Christ. This week was kind of fun. Um, We learned some new words. Um, We talked about who is God, and so we looked at his omniscience. He knows everything. We looked at his omnipotence. That means he has the power for everything. So he knows everything and he has the power to do whatever he wants. Then we saw that he's all good and all loving. And from the Ingram boys, we learned that's omni good and omni loving. Um, And so because of all that, that leads us to our application. We can trust God. And now this week, we're going to look at who are you? And then the last week, we're going to look at faith and works, because that's a question we all have. So come to that. It's fun. Um, It's not like a normal class. There's a lot of conversation. Uh, You don't have to talk if you don't want when you come, but we're going to have food six to eight Wednesday. So be here for that. Let me pray while you turn to John chapter nine. Father, thank you for loving us so much that you were willing to come on a rescue mission. We did not deserve your son. We do not deserve your Holy Spirit. We do not deserve eternal life and forgiveness, but you've given it to us, and we thank you. And now all we can do in response is praise you, is worship you. We know that you don't need us. Um, 
but we know that you want us. We know that you don't need us to carry out your work, but you choose to use us to carry out your work. And so we, uh, we're here to worship you, and we're going to worship forever. As we were just singing, forever and ever, we're going to worship you, and it's going to be glorious. Um, open up our hearts and our minds this morning that we would see what you would have to tell us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So some years ago, I was in a kind of a little Bible study with two other men, and we were getting together, and we were telling our stories, and it kind of happened every week. You know, we were talking about what we were before Christ, and I just couldn't remember what I was before Christ because I gave my life to Christ when I was real young, um, and I remembered the moment. I remember being five or six years old, and I remember praying with mom next to the fish tank. That's, that's what I remember. But I also remember at camp praying with a counselor, and I've shared this before. I gave my life to Christ every year for a couple years because camp scared me. Um, but I remember that, and I remember falling in love with Jesus at camp. I remember having a heart for the, the word, and these other two men had different stories. They didn't come to Christ until they were older in life, and they had a lot of life lived before that. And so they would share what they were, and then now what they are, the difference in life. And there was part of me that was a little jealous. And I remember sharing that one day. I said, man, I wish I had that story of here's what I was, and then boom, I came to Christ, and here's what I am. They said, no, you don't want that story because they have things in their minds. They have things that happened that they can't take back that still affect who they are. But it's got me thinking, we all come to Christ in different paths. Some of us were born in Christian families and we came to Christ young and it was genuine. Some of us were born in Christian families and we walked away. You know, maybe there was legalism or something that drove us away and later we came back. Some of us were raised in the world, no Christian influence, and later we came to Christ. But there's some things that are consistent, consistently needed for those who come to Christ and results after. There's some that are consistent. And we're going to be looking that, at that today in John 9 because we're going to see Jesus give somebody sight, physical sight. But the story is told for a reason because this man not only gains physical sight, he gains spiritual sight. And that's actually the deeper meaning that is why John put this in. There's only seven signs in the book of John. And so each one is put in here for a reason. And what we've been looking at in John 7, 8, and 9 in our series, we're calling Moth and Cockroach. Um, is that what it's called? Cockroach or Moth? We're, we're looking at this series because in these three chapters, it all takes place in the same week. Three chapters, one week of time at the Feast of Booze in Jerusalem. And this was a feast where they were remembering what God had done for them in Israel coming out of Egypt, uh, the nation of Israel coming out, and how God would lead them with a pillar of fire by, day, uh, by night, a pillar of smoke by day. He would feed them with manna. Uh, he would feed them with pigeons sometimes, and he would protect them. And so they're remembering what he did, and they're also looking forward to the Messiah coming because we sang about that new covenant. In the future, they knew somebody was going to come like Moses, a prophet like Moses, but we know more now. He was way greater than Moses. He was God in flesh. He was going to come and, and set up a new covenant, not by law, but instead that God's law would be in our hearts. The Holy Spirit would dwell in us. And so this new covenant was going to come. And now in these three chapters, we see Jesus revealing himself as that Messiah that they were looking forward to. At this feast, they're doing these rituals, light rituals, water rituals, and Jesus stands up periodically and he says, that ritual, that water ritual, that points to me. If you're thirsty, spiritually thirsty, come to me and drink. I'll fulfill you. And the light ritual, we talked about that, where they would light up these big lights at night. It would be like stadium lights. And he said, I am the light of the world. And he was saying that, by the way, standing right next to two of those big torches in the square of the temple. He says, I am the light of the world, claiming what God had claimed before. 
And while he's claiming these things, there are two responses. There are two that we really see. There are those who come against him. These are the cockroaches. These are the the Pharisees, the people who are exposed to Jesus and his light, and they run and hide. And we see why. In John 7, 7, Jesus is going to go, or Jesus' brothers are heading up to the, t- to the, the feast. And he says, I'm not going right now. And his brothers say, no, go, make, make yourself known. Now, his brothers didn't believe in him, so they're kind of poking at him a little bit. They said, yeah, nobody does what you do and, unless they want to be followed. Go up there. And he said, you know, the world doesn't hate you because you're like the world, but the, hate, the world hates me. And he says, because I testify that its works are evil. That's why many will hate Jesus and hate us if we represent Jesus, because Jesus and the Holy Spirit now testify that their works are evil. Jesus reveals sin, and people don't want their sin revealed. It's like a cockroach doesn't want to be in the light. The light comes on, they run and hide. Most people, their sin comes into the light. They want to hide it. But Jesus, as the light of the world, will not only reveal sin, but he can get rid of sin. That's what's awesome about this new covenant. He not only will reveal it, he'll do something about it. And he's about to here in John when he's going to give his life for it. But so there's the response of those against him. And then there's the response of those who believe. And you see it periodically through these chapters. But there were some who believed. But there were some who believed. By the way, I do want to point out that these who came against him the most were very religious. Very spiritual. Very, uh, they knew the law. They knew the Bible. And they were the most against him. And I I point that out because I often wonder what would happen if Jesus walked into our churches here in America? How many Pharisees would he find? And what areas of my life am I like a Pharisee? And Jesus would would set me straight. Um, But often we want to be right with our religion, but we don't really want Jesus. And you see this all the time in the church. People, they like their religion, but they don't like Jesus. They'll say they do, but they don't want him to have influence in their lives. Here's here's how you test that. Just go and try and change their tradition that isn't biblical. If somebody has a tradition that's not biblical, but it's tied up in their spirituality, try and change that. A lot of times it's not going to go well, unless their heart is for God and they'll realize and maybe make some adjustments. Not too many details on that. Um, But Jesus in this, he gives us, he gives those who believe some instruction And actually, before these chapters even start, uh, if you remember, Jesus turned, uh, he took a few loaves of bread and a few fish, and he made it into a meal for 5,000. And the next day, people were around him, and and they said, we want this food all the time. And he said the same thing as he said about the water. He said, if you're hungry, come to me and eat, and I'll be your food. And And he said, you must do the works of him who sent me. And they said, what are the works that we must do? He said, believe. The work is that you believe in the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And so our work is to believe. And you see this running throughout, that those who believe in Jesus are those who have a will to do God's will, those who will come to the light. But then there are those who do not want God in control, and they will buck him. So throughout these two chapters, John 7 and 8 that we've looked at, there's this confrontation. Opposition is increasing, and it needs to, because they're going to kill Jesus later. But it's not his time yet. So Jesus says things right at the end of chapter 8. We saw that in in verse 58, where Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Very clear claim to be God. They picked up stones that were going to kill him right there, but it wasn't his time yet, so he snuck out. And now we're going to see Jesus meeting somebody. Jesus giving sight to a blind man, physical and then spiritual. 
Now, I wanted to make the, the point, though, as we look at this and we think cockroach or moth, and we might think, well, what are we? Sometimes it's not clear. Part of the reason is none of us are born a moth. We are all born, maybe not a cockroach, I guess. I think we are. Um, this is where the illustration breaks down. Because before a moth is a moth, what is it? It's, it's a caterpillar. And it has to go through a metamorphosis to become a moth. Just like that, every person needs to go through a metamorphosis to become a, a Christian, to be a disciple, a Jesus follower. And so there is a process where you move from, from cockroach to moth. Uh, I don't know if any of you have read this book, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. <laughs> yes, our kids love that book. And so, you know, the caterpillar eats through a leaf one day and the next day eats through a leaf and a strawberry and whatever. But it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger until finally he's ready to become a moth. For a lot of people, that is the process of coming to Christ. You, you know a little bit, you know a little bit more, you submit a little bit, and then eventually you realize, oh, I'm following Christ, if it's not an immediate response. But we're going to look at this. We're going to look at this process. So look at John chapter 9, if you would. John chapter 9. Still at this feast, probably near the very end, chapter 9 verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Kind of a side note, there's a lot there. There's actually a lot in these chapters and some we don't have time to dig into. But there was a, an understanding at that time, and there often is now, that calamity is a result of sin that health issues, that sickness, disease is a result of sin. And the truth is, sometimes it is, but oftentimes it's not. Uh, you see that in the book of Job, where Job is being afflicted, but he had done nothing wrong to deserve it. It's just that God has a bet going with the devil, um, and he's going to win his bet and prove that, that Job is truly after God. And so Job is going through these things, but his brothers come to him. Job had lost all his money. He had lost all his family, basically, except for his wife, which she wasn't much good. Um, and then he finally lost his health, and his friends come to him, and they say, what have you done? You need to confess your sin. Obviously, all this has happened. You've done something wrong. He said, I haven't. And he maintained his innocence through it. He said, I haven't done anything wrong. But that's common thinking, that sometimes, or that always, calamity, sickness, uh, disease is because of sin. But here, Jesus makes clear, no, no, no. This guy didn't sin, neither did his parents. But why was this man born blind? He says, this man was born blind, in verse 3, um, that the, work, the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why this man was born blind. And we don't know how old he is. I'm going to guess 20. He's 20 years old. He's 20, he'd been blind for 20 years. He's a beggar. Maybe he's a little older, 25. I don't know. And he's been in that condition for that long, suffering so that the works of God might be revealed. So here's, here's a sermon within a sermon. Here's a side note. When trouble hits you, when life happens, it could be that God wants to reveal himself in and through you. It could be that it is so that the works of God may be seen. That's why we can rejoice when we endure suffering. That's why we can rejoice. So side note, but it could be a big one. That may be the one that changes everything for you. So make a note of that. But our, our trouble might be just so that God could be glorified. But here's what we see. As he sees this man born blind, that's verse one. He was blind from birth. Now, there is symbolism. Um, I'll tell you, here's the way I read scripture, literally. 
I read scripture literally unless it's clear that it's not. Unless you get to Revelation sometimes and, it, and, and there's the picture of Jesus with a sword coming. Did he actually have a sword coming out of his mouth? Or is that talking about the word? But typically, we read the Bible literally. That's the easiest way. If there's an easy, simple meaning, trust that meaning. So it, what, what's the saying? Uh, if the plain meaning of the text makes good sense, seek no other sense. So there is plain meaning here, but part of that meaning as you look at the context, is spiritual. Because Jesus has been talking about light. I am the light of the world. And moving from darkness to light. And here, he's going to give sight to a blind man. Still playing on the theme of light and darkness. And he's going to give him light. Physically and spiritually. And so there's other meaning through here spiritually that's clear. We don't have to dig too deep to find it. Uh, if somebody digs too deep to find a hidden meaning, be careful. <laughs> be wary of what that is. But here, here's, here's a very clear point. Born blind. How were you born? How is every human born? Blind. Spiritually. The Bible's very, very clear. We are all born in sin, and it's our parents' fault. It is. But we all choose to sin. The Bible makes it very clear. We're not sin because of our parents for very long, maybe like three seconds when we pop out. Then we choose to sin. No, oh, I'm cold. Um, so we're sinners by birth, by nature, and then we choose to sin. Everybody is born in darkness. And I mean, that has implications. Your mind might be going, well, then if a baby dies, do they go to hell? And honestly, I don't know. I choose, here's where I choose to believe, no. I choose to believe that God is going to have mercy on those. But the Bible doesn't teach that. <laughs> Just so you know, the Bible doesn't teach that. Um, the Bible does teach that everybody is born in sin. And unless God does something, they're destined for eternal destruction. So this is in your notes. Everyone is born in the dark in sin, blind to the truth of God and to Jesus. Blind. This is the sixth sign in the book where he's about to heal him. This is the sixth sign. There's only seven the next one is the raising of Lazarus, but there's six, and they all point to who Jesus is, and they are all significant. The first one is he turned water into wine, then he healed a boy, and he healed him from a distance, um, and then he heals the paralytic. If you remember that one, he feeds the 5,000, he walks on water, and here's the sixth one where he heals him. Let's look at this, verse four. Um, verse five, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So he says that right before he does this. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, he made mud with the saliva, and he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed, and he came back seeing. Look at how Jesus does this, this miracle. What does he do? He uses the dirt, he spits in it, and he makes mud. Is that how you would choose to heal somebody? <laughs> There's significance in that. The idea in the time is that saliva, you're, you're, it's part of you. And so Jesus used part of himself to heal the man. He spit and he created mud. He took, took the dust, made it clay, put it on his eyes. When else have you seen the dust used? Genesis 1, yeah. You used to be dirt, and someday you're going to be dirt again. Physically, spiritually, not at all. But we were, we were made, God took the dust and he turned it into a man. And then he took a piece of the man and he made a woman. By the way, from John chapter 1, we know who it is that took the dust and made him into man. That was actually Jesus. That was Jesus. And that's very clear in Scripture. So Jesus made the first man. 
And here, Jesus does another work of creation, recreation by spitting in the dust, making clay, and putting it on his eyes. When Jesus gives spiritual sight, it is intimate as Jesus gives himself to the person. It's intimate. He spits, he touches him. And then he tells him to go to the pool of Siloam. We've seen this pool in the last couple chapters. This is the pool that is representative of the coming Messiah. This is a pool that is from a spring, a fresh spring that was tunneled from King Hezekiah into the the city walls. This was the pool that they would go to while doing the rituals during this feast, and they would take the water, and they would go, and they would pour it out, looking forward to what God is going to do, sending his Messiah. This is the pool he sends him to, and he goes, and he washes in the pool. This pool is a very public place. It wasn't a hidden out of the way spot. This is where people went. I want you to notice a couple things here before we move on. Jesus initiates. You don't see the man do anything, right? They walk by. The man is there, blind, begging. Jesus initiates. He spits on the ground. He makes it clay. He puts it on his eyes. But then the man has to do something. He has to go wash. The man has to respond with some obedience. He, He does something. He goes and he washes. And I think this is significant in several areas. Jesus initiates, the man responds with some obedience. And we're going to play on this. We're going to look at this a little more. We do have to be a little bit careful that we don't think our salvation is a cooperative effort. It's not some of God, some of me. It's not that God, you know, does most of the work and we take the last step. We have one work in our salvation. What is it? Believe, absolutely. That's what Jesus has said over and over. Believe, that's our one work, believe. But belief is an act of faith. In the Bible, belief and faith are synonymous. They mean the same thing. It's a belief, not like we often think an intellectual understanding of of facts. I believe that Alex's shirt is bluish. Um, But that's not this type of belief. Belief is faith. Belief, the type of this belief is I believe this stool can hold me and I sit on the stool. That's biblical belief and faith, that you believe it, and then you entrust yourself to it. That's our only work, is to believe, which leads to actions. If you want more details on that, two weeks (laughs) at our Bible Basics, we're going to look at faith and works, because we we wrestle with that. Let's be honest. We wrestle with, what do we do, and what does God do? We're going to get that totally cleared up in two weeks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But this man is willing. And here's what we've seen from the two chapters before, that those who will to do God's will will believe. But those who don't want to do God's will, those who want to remain in control will do anything to avoid believing. But this man obviously has a soft heart. This man obviously has a desire to go God's way. And so he obeys. He goes and he washes and he comes back seeing. Place yourself, uh, let's not move past this too quick. Place yourself in his shoes, if you can. Imagine, just close your eyes. Imagine being in this condition for 25 years. You've never seen anything. You smell things good, the apple pie, oh, that smells good. You smelled a rose. You've heard your mother's voice, but you've never seen anything. Then all of a sudden, your eyes are opened, and you see a tree. What color is that? That's green. You, you, how, you wouldn't know. <laughs> oh, that, that, Wow. I've smelled a rose before. What? That's beautiful too. Oh, what? you know, look, just imagine that. Imagine being able to see all of a sudden. He had friends, he had family, and all of a sudden he could see them. That is a big deal. <laughs> 
Picture that. He gave sight to a man born blind. It is not that much different when we gain spiritual sight. Do you remember when you gained spiritual sight and all of a sudden you understood things that you didn't understand before? All of a sudden, things in the Bible started to make sense that didn't make sense before because we were born blind. We couldn't get it. And all of a sudden, our eyes were opened, our minds were open, our hearts were open, and we understood things. It's the same type of thing that we begin to understand. And again, we, we don't understand everything perfectly, but look at what happens. Now, the people knew this man. He was a beggar. Some of them watched him wash. Imagine being one of those people. They see this man like this. You know, he's, I, I don't know, did they use sticks then? I'm not sure. But he's got the mud on his eyes, and he walks into the pool, and he does this. And then he comes out, and he, and he opens them, and he's looking around. And now he's not tripping anymore. So people saw, people knew, and they respond. Verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it's he. Others said, no, but he's like him. But he kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went, washed, and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. I couldn't see where he went. He couldn't see at that point. So he just tells what Jesus did for him. He shares the story. Nothing like this had ever happened before. In Isaiah 35, 5, Isaiah prophesied that when the Messiah would come, the blind would see. And here he goes to the pool, indicating Messiah, and the blind got sight. Very obvious claim of who Jesus is and what he can do. Now look at verse 14. Or verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day. That darn Jesus, he keeps healing on the Sabbath day. When Jesus made, he did two things wrong. He made mud. That, you can't do that on the Sabbath. He made mud and he opened his eyes. So he made mud and he healed. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, speaking of Jesus, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So here's this debate going on. They see there's a blind man, used to be, and they're saying, well, it's not him. He looks like him. He had a twin that nobody's seen before. That's who this is. They're trying to find any reason not to believe. And the man just says, this is what he did. He made, he made mud, put on my eyes, and now I see. These men have a will to disbelieve, and you're going to see this theme even throughout here. They had a will to disbelieve. They wanted to disbelieve. They did not want to believe. And they're debating. And so in verse 17, they decide to ask him. So they said to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, he said he is a prophet. The man first concludes that Jesus is a prophet. Picture this scene with me again, okay? He can now see all the neighbors, people, they're like, check this out, this is awesome. We gotta take him to the Pharisees to see what they say. The religious leaders, the spiritual leaders, the pastors, the people that really knew the Bible. They take him to him. Check it out. This man was blind. Now he sees. Why did the people do that? Because they probably want to hear from their leaders, oh, that Jesus, he's probably the Messiah. You should go follow him. Or, or they, want, they want to know what's going on. So the Pharisees start grilling him. What happened? Well, he put mud, tells them what happened. They go, oh, I'm not sure. And there's this debate going on. The man is still standing there listening to the debate. 
Do you remember a Pharisee that came at night and talked to Jesus? Nicodemus. And Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus, we saw last chapter, is in this group. Nicodemus is one of those in the debate. Nicodemus is one who, after Jesus died, prepared him for burial. Nicodemus became a follower. Nicodemus is one of those. I imagine the man there, because I know Nicodemus is there, and he's one of those going, this man must be from God. This, you know, sinners don't do this. And so the man is listening to their debate, and finally they turn to him, and he goes, well, now that I've listened to your argument, they're right. He's a prophet. He's got to be. So this man, couldn't see, probably not real educated, he comes to the conclusion that he's a prophet. And this is the first piece in the metamorphosis process, is recognizing who Jesus is, at least a piece, that he's from God. Now, he doesn't know all the details yet, does he? He just, know, he just says he's a prophet. He's drawn to God. He says he's a prophet. If you want more on that, some weeks ago we did a, a sermon looking at Lord, liar, or lunatic, where Jesus claims to be God, and the conclusion is either Jesus is God or he's crazy, which crazy people didn't do what he did, um, or he's of the devil. Those are the only options. Lord, liar, of the devil, or, or lunatic. And so this man concludes, well, he must be from God. But in verse 18, they're not content. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called his parents. Verse 19, and they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does this man see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. Again, the will to disbelieve. They have all this right in front of them, and they say, nope, this isn't him. Go get his parents. The parents come. They say, well, it's him. Yeah, it's him. We don't know how he has the sight, but it's him. Again, the will to disbelieve. Uh, I've shared the, the quote from the Nobel Prize receiving um, scientist. He helped map the DNA. And he concluded that the reason we're here is aliens brought spores to earth. Um, very intelligent scientist. Uh, way smarter than me, this guy is. But he has a will to disbelieve. He'll find any other solution. Aliens came because I don't want to follow God. <laughs> I don't want to follow God. They, they don't want to believe. They don't want to believe. And so they call them. Now, the parents admit he's their son. But what's their issue? They're afraid. They're afraid of the Jews. Why? Because the Jews had already decided that they were going to excommunicate anybody from the synagogue who confessed Jesus to be the Christ. Now, we don't fully understand that. But that's a big deal. If in that area, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in that area, if you were excommunicated from the synagogue, you were kicked out of the church, basically, you would probably lose your job. You would lose friends, possibly family. You would lose everything. It'd be like right now in a Muslim world, or even right now in Israel, confessing Jesus as Lord. You lose everything. And so these people, they didn't want to lose everything. So they said, well, we got to be really careful. We don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He's of age. So he's at least 18 or so. He's of age. Ask him. Verse 24, so, 
for the second time, this is where it gets good. This is fun. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is, is a sinner. By the way, that give glory to God, in Joshua 9, 17, there was a man named Achan um, who disobeyed God and, and they came to Achan. They, they figured out he was the one who had sinned and they said, give glory to God. Tell us what you've done. Give glory to God. Admit your sin. They're saying the same type of thing here to this man. They're saying, give glory to God. We already, we've concluded Jesus is a sinner. He's not who you just said he is. He's not a prophet. Give glory to God. Confess you were wrong and, and basically deny Jesus is what they're saying. Give glory to God. Deny him. He answered, verse 25, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> the tables turn. This uneducated beggar who's been blind from birth now is kind of getting on the Pharisees, and they don't like it. But they ask him again. He says, what's your problem? You're not listening to me. I already told you what he does. I already told you how he healed me. Do you want to be his disciples? <laughs> Notice what this man does. He's faced with those way more educated than him, and he debates with them, but he doesn't get into the details. He just tells them what Jesus did for him. How often are we scared of sharing our faith because we're scared of what we can't answer? Well, I can't explain the Trinity, so I can't share my faith. <laughs> I, you know, we, we get bogged down. Not in him. He just shared what, what God had done for him. Kind of like it, he's a witness, you know, and if, if you've ever watched uh, court shows or whatever, and you have witnesses, um, and they'll call somebody up, an eyewitness of an account. You know, somebody, I saw him kill him. So they put him on the stand. What did you see? He killed, well, he's not there because he's dead, but he, I saw him do this. You know, he shot him. And then the, a, a scientist gets up or whatever, a ballistics guy, he says, okay, well, what kind of gun did he use? You know, what was the, the gauge and what were the ballistics, all this? And the guy's like, I don't know. And of course, the other lawyer would stand up, I object. You know, he's just an eyewitness. He's not a, an expert witness. He's just a witness. And I think that's kind of the key here. This man wasn't an expert witness, but he was a great witness. We don't have to be expert witnesses, meaning we don't have to know everything in here to be a witness. All we have to do is like this man did, what did Jesus do for you? Because you were blind, now you see, what has God done for you? That was very Christmassy. Um, but what has Jesus done for you? And what is, figure out what Jesus has done for you specifically, something you can share in about two minutes. What has Jesus done for you? That's your testimony. That's your witness. What has Jesus done for you? And so that's what this man does. As a witness, the man does not claim to be an expert. He simply states what Jesus did for him. Blind to sight. Doesn't know all the details. And you see the man is getting a little bit of attitude here. And he says, you don't want to become his disciples also, do you? You notice that word, also? What's that mean about the man? He had already decided to be a disciple of Jesus. He had already decided he was going to follow Jesus. Here's a key in that metamorphosis process. You recognize who Jesus is, at least a piece, and you go, I'm going to follow that. He had decided to follow. That gives me a little bit of chills. He knew enough that I'm going to follow. That's a disciple. 
being willing to follow. And I can't help but think that part of this was him listening to these educated men debate. And he came to a conclusion based on the evidence in that conversation. Before he said he's a man. Then he said he's a prophet. And now he says, I'm following him. Because the evidence was overwhelming. And he had the will to do God's will. He was willing to believe. So I don't know if you uh, have ever heard of a man named Lou Wallace. I'm curious, who's ever heard of Lou Wallace? Nobody, okay. Ah, one. Lou Wallace was uh, in the Union Army in the Civil War, and he fought in several other battles. But he was, he was, I think he was a colonel, possibly a general. I'm not sure exactly what he was. But he was an officer in the Union Army. And he was on a train after the Civil War, and he was traveling with another officer from the Union Army. Uh, a, a man, what was his name? I forget his name. I don't think I even wrote it down. Um, Ingersoll, that's what it was, and I think he was a colonel. He was a, a well-known atheist in the time, and he would speak out. He would speak on atheism or agnosticism. I'm not sure which he was, but he would speak against God, against belief in God, and so they ended up on a train for a couple hours, and, and the story goes that he didn't really have much conviction either way, but here listening to Ingersoll, he realized, I need to come up with some conclusions, and the story goes that he was challenged by Ingersoll because he was a writer, he was an educated man, go disprove the Bible. And so he went and he studied and he researched. Intelligent man. He was the governor of, I think, New Mexico. And I mean, he did a whole bunch of great things. And he went and he studied. And in the end, he was going to write a book. The challenge was go write a book disproving the Bible so that people will stop following this junk. He, he did. He wrote a book called Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur... And the subtitle, anybody know the subtitle that has been removed? A story of the Christ. Ben-Hur was supposed to be a tricky way of sharing the gospel. <laughs> because in Ben-Hur, the main character goes back and he has been gone during this whole time of Jesus. And he comes in while Jesus is at, at its height. And he meets Jesus and he, he has some encounters with Jesus. And then Jesus dies. So Ben-Hur was written. By the way, it's the, the best-selling book in all of the 19th century. And it's never been out of print to date. But Ben-Hur was written by somebody who researched and the evidence convinced them Jesus is the way. Um, and they made great difference for him through that. Um, at least back then, now the movies, I think, have changed it. But the evidence, this blind man sees the evidence and he's convinced. And what do they do? They answered him, verse 34. You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. That, those words, cast him out. He was excommunicated. He wasn't just kicked out of that room. He was kicked out of the synagogue. He was excommunicated. He lost anything he had. <laughs> he just gained his sight, and now he lost everything else. He probably lost his parents, because his parents were unwilling to go against the Jews, because they didn't want to be kicked out. But he was. He was willing. Look at this. He was willing to give it all up for Jesus. He was willing to follow, willing to sacrifice all. That's a disciple, one who gives up all to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. And he was willing. So they cast him out. Verse 35, Jesus heard they had cast him out and found him. Having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? It's another word for Messiah. Do you believe in the son of man? He answered him. He said, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. 
Lord, he calls him Lord, one in charge. He'd already decided to follow him. Now he reveals who he is. He's the Messiah, Lord. And then what did he do? He worshiped him. Men don't take worship. Angels don't receive worship. Jesus received worship. Jesus is always the main character, but look what Jesus did to this man. He, gave, he took him from spiritually blind, from physically blind to sight, spiritually blind to sight. The man confesses that Jesus is a prophet. The man then decides he's going to follow him. The man is a bold witness and loses everything, and then here he worships. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what this man does. He publicly confesses Jesus as Lord. Our spirituality, our relationship with God is very, very personal, but it's never private. You know, you'll hear that all the time. I, I follow God, but I don't need the church. <laughs> you know, I follow God, but I don't need to be baptized. I don't need other people to see. No, our walk with God is very personal, but it's not private. We're called to be in community, and we're called to share it publicly. So Christmas Eve, we're going to have a baptism. If you've decided to follow Christ, you've never been baptized, get baptized Christmas Eve. It's going to be awesome. So come talk to me uh, or Paul after the service, and we can get that hooked up. But this man boldly follows. Now, there's a, a debate that begins after that that I think really starts to run into the next chapter, so we're not going to look at that. But we know there were Pharisees listening to this whole exchange between the previous blind man and Jesus. They're, list, they're close. They're listening. The guy, at, Jesus admits that he's the Messiah, and the man right there worships him. Be convinced. So my question for us is, where are we in this metamorphosis? Where are you? Are you drawn to God, maybe? Are you drawn to Jesus? Are you still trying to think, you know, what am I going to do with this Jesus character, the church? Have you concluded that he's good, but maybe not that he's God? If you've moved past that, you realize that Jesus is the Son of God, and you believe he died for you and rose again, have you committed to believe? Do you follow him? And if so, here's some of the results. You will be a bold witness. You will be a bold witness no matter what it costs you. This man lost everything. Jesus says elsewhere, if you're not willing to give up father or mother for my sake, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Are we willing? I think this is what affected me the most in this passage. Because I believe. I've followed Jesus for a long time. But has it cost me much? <laughs> Here in America, we're blessed in that it, it might not cost much. But are we willing to step out? Are we willing for it to cost? What do you need to do with this? As I was going over it this morning, I kind of summed it all up in this statement. Here's the end result of enlightenment. Because Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He came to give light, to take people from spiritually blind to spiritual sight. What happens with enlightenment? The end result of enlightenment is a person who knows who Jesus is, maybe not perfectly, but he knows who he is, the son of God, that he died and rose for him. And he follows with total abandon living as a bold witness regardless the cost. Living as a bold witness regardless the cost. What do you need to do with this? Is Jesus worth it? He is. And this Christmas season, guess what? We get to worship. We get to worship all the time. We're allowed to. 
They're going to play these songs on the radio. We get to worship. We get to share our faith. We get to say things like Merry Christmas. What do you need to do with this? We're going to close with some more worship. But I do, as, as always, um, I'm committed that we be doers of the word and not hearers only. Uh, the word is supposed to bring life change. I am not content in my own life with just knowing things and not doing anything with it. And I'm not content with teaching the Bible and just going, that's enough. For me, we must do something with it. So if the Holy Spirit is convicting you, it's between you and God, but what do you need to do with this? Where are you in the process? If it's time to go all in, if you're ready to go all in, we're gonna have people back in that room that can pray with you during this last music set, but we would love to pray with you and help you understand what does it mean to be an all-in Jesus follower? What does it mean? And yeah, it'll cost, but guess what? It's worth it. And if, you do, if you're not sure it's worth it, come, come talk to us. It's worth it. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we love you. You give sight to the blind, and we all were blind. Some of us probably still are blind, but you give us sight, and not because we earn it. That man didn't earn it. That man didn't even ask for it, really, but he responded with faith when you approached him. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us. Thank you for coming as a baby, humbly, vulnerable. Thank you for living a life that was difficult. You were abused. You were poor. And then you died the most painful, humiliating death for us. Thank you. We believe. We believe. I pray for anybody in this room right now that if they have never chosen to follow you for the first time, that they would do that now. That they would pray this prayer. They would say, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross and rose for me. I confess you as Lord of my life, meaning you're the one in charge. And I want you to be in control. Thank you for forgiving for my, me for my sin. Thank you. Holy Spirit, I pray for the rest of us too that uh, <laughs> part of this transformation is uh, we become like you. And we're never gonna be perfectly like you in this life, but I think we can become more like you. And all of us have areas where we need to grow. I pray that you would reveal those to us, that we would be humble and willing to make the changes that you would make. And I pray again for this city, for Carson City, for Gardnerville, Minden. Holy Spirit, move. Move in this church and move in all the churches that are teaching your word. Bring people to you, grow them in you, and let us see a revival. Change our country for the better, for you, for your glory. Save souls. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.